there was a lure into the theater which was supplied by the ads, by the posters, by all of what was used to publicize the film, and then, of course, the letdown when you actually sat down after buying your ticket. Out of the silver shadows and into the click lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert, proprietor of Nitrateville.com, coming to you live, transcribed, from Chicago. My guest on this inaugural episode of Nitrateville Radio will be movie blogger and author John McElwee, talking about his book, The Art of Selling Movies, a fantastic look at an underappreciated art form for selling movies throughout most of the 20th century, newspaper ads. But this being a first episode, let me explain the show for a minute. I'll be as quick as I can. Nitrateville is an online discussion site devoted to the classic era of movies, from their beginnings in the silent era to somewhere around the social and artistic changes of the 1960s. We call it Nitrateville because for most of that time, movies were shown on nitrate film stock. It's a place where fans can speak directly to archivists, authors, producers of video releases, silent film accompanists, anybody who shares their love for the art. One thing I've done on the site a few times is interview such people in the typical magazine interview format. And it occurred to me that another way to bring people together would be to start doing those interviews in an audio format so you can hear directly from the people doing interesting work involving old movies. So here we are with a podcast. It will be posted at nitrateville.com, but the best thing to do if you want to make sure you know about every episode when it comes out is to subscribe somewhere that makes that stuff happen automatically. That will be iTunes, of course, and SoundCloud for a start, but we'll be adding others like Stitcher and Google Play, I hope. Anyway, go to one of those, subscribe now, and if you like the show, leave a comment with as many stars as you think the show deserves. That will help other people discover it, too. All right. So on to episode one. There are lots of old movie blogs out there, but one I've been reading steadily for some years now is Greenbrier Picture Shows, written by John McElwee. What's different and fascinating about it to me is that McElwee focuses not just on old movies, but on exhibition, how those movies did when they originally came out. And especially in the pre-TV era, how local theater owners sold them to their audiences. A couple of years ago, McElwee had a great book about exhibition called Showman Sell It Hot. It covered how the often fancifully exotic product of Hollywood was sold in gritty real America, like North Carolina, where McElwee grew up. Now he has a book out called The Art of Selling Movies. We'll have links and all that stuff at Nitrateville. The title is literal. It's a collection of movie ads from the teens to the 1960s. Hey, you say, I could look in any old newspaper and see movie ads. Well, yes, you could. But they wouldn't be the prime examples of movie ballyhoo that John McElwee has collected over a lifetime. And they wouldn't tell the story of selling movies that McElwee tells. I uh, had clipped theater ads out of the paper when I was uh, barely in school. And uh, I began saving them 
in scrapbooks from the time I was um, about 10 and um, continued doing that for a period of time and then really began collecting in earnest much later on when I got old newspapers from around the country. And there were people who would send me ads knowing that I would be interested. And and to this day, there are a lot of people who read Greenbrier that will send me a link to an eBay listing for an ad that I might be interested in, that kind of thing. And fortunately, ads are cheap. You can get them on eBay at a a very reasonable price still. They're, they're not like posters or lobby cards, obviously. Right. Well, it's interesting. I suppose this is one of the things that uh, us old oldsters will have to explain to the young folks now, how you watch the newspaper to find out what the movies were going to be. I feel like uh, if I if I ever run across a movie coming out on like DVD that's from the mid to late 70s and I haven't heard of it, it's like wow! How how did that happen? I saw every, you know I saw the existence of everything. I may not have gone to all the movies, but I knew they existed because I watched the newspaper ads like a hawk. Yes, I, I know that people like you and I, I'm sure, who really kept up with new films growing up, we have a certain image in our mind of any movie from that period by the appearance of the ad. We can still kind of visualize the way the ads looked in the newspapers. And and certain things will always be associated with certain theaters for me. You know, I saw Jaws in a full house at Cinemas East in Wichita, and it's sort of, that's that's in my head if I watch Jaws now. Of course, most of the theaters have been torn down since then, but... Yes, yes. Well, I, I was about to say that um, a difference between you and I, of course, is that where I grew up, we had exactly one theater, and um, there were a few drive-ins, but essentially I saw everything growing up at a single theater in the small town where I grew up, which was uh, North Wilkesboro, North Carolina. Okay. Um, yeah, so what what time period are we talking about where you started collecting the ads? Well, that would have been uh, the early 60s, and from 1964 when I really began to clip out the ones that looked most interesting. and. I would go to neighbors' houses, and they would have their old newspapers, and I would flip through those. And, of course, they would subscribe to papers other than the one that we took. So between three or four households that I would uh, go in and out of, I would be able to get uh, Winston-Salem, Charlotte, Greensboro, at least those three, and then a few small-town newspapers uh, that might crop up here and there. Okay. Well, let's talk about the, uh, you know, you call your book The Art of Selling Movies. Um, w- let's talk about when this art really started. When When is the earliest point that you see uh, movies being advertised in the newspaper? I mean, the Nickelodeon bills, they weren't really about a specific movie, and they re- really weren't, they turned over so fast. I assume that it took until movies had a certain prestige to start being paid attention to this way. Yes, and I think I think the star system had a lot to do with it, because uh, when an ad could promote a specific personality, then of course it attracted more attention. So what I noticed was that in the teens, you began to have ads that would revolve around Chaplin or Mary Pickford and William S. Hart, people like that. Otherwise, uh, movie ads were really 
almost like the old vaudeville ads, which would be essentially a list of the attractions rather than using uh, illustrations. It, it really took the star system to put illustrations into the ads and make them more prominent. And there's a really great example early in the book for Chaplin where it shows him from behind and it's a fairly abstracted drawing of him and his sort of, you know, baggy pants gait. Um, and what I thought was really striking about it is, is you could imagine the same ad being for like an art house revival from the 1950s. It's very clean and modernist looking and it's almost like that kind of pop culture found its way to abstracting art very quickly to make it easily readable in a, you know, what was a fairly low-resolution medium, the newspaper. You know, a lot of that was the product of the imagination of a single theater operator in uh, any small to large to mid-range town throughout the country where everyone was really on their own, and they just had to rely upon their own imagination and initiative to dream up these ads. Yeah, so how did that work? I mean, there there was clearly some standardized art for movies from a pretty early era. Um, I think of, like, the ball that uh, the name Birth of a Nation appears inside. That seems to be pretty standardized between um, posters and an ad that you include. But at the same time, you're, you talk about how a lot of these, especially the bigger houses, they were really creating art on their own as well. Well, they were, and as far as guidance, there were the press books that were sent to exhibitors where there would be suggested ads. But what I found was that in some of the bigger theaters, and at least the more important runs, they would have art departments that would create individual ads for individual theaters, and they were, they were much less reliant on the press books. Yeah, I was thinking of the, you quote the line from Marcus Lowe early on, we sell tickets to theaters, not movies. So many theaters developed such an individual style of advertising that it, there was like a personality about them. And I know that when I was growing up, there were certain theaters that I would gravitate to in the ads because I knew that they would come up with something unique something arresting on its own and it didn't even matter what the film was because you knew that they would find some uh, very stylish way of promoting it you were talking about the star system and certain stars lent themselves really easily to being sort of abstract and and made, made iconic in some way and there's a lot of stars. I mean, there's a lot of caricatures of stars in the book, and they're usually pretty good. It became, you know, it was clearly an advantage to be to being, you know, Roscoe Arbuckle and easy to draw and identify. Uh, think of other ones. Uh, you know, John Barrymore seems to really get beautiful art treatment every time he turns up in the book. Something about his, you know, his great profile seems to have inspired the artists, and I suppose also because they were prestige pictures, more attention was paid to them when they came out, and all those kind of things. But it seems to have really helped stars to be translatable into black and white. Well, that's true, and as newspapers develop, as the quality of newsprint improved, then it was easier to translate like photographic art to an ad 
whereas before I think it was really more effective if you did use like sharply etched caricature art or cartoons, that sort of thing. And of course a lot of these stars lent themselves well to caricatures like uh, obviously Barrymore or Arbuckle or, or uh, Chaplin especially. Yeah, I noticed even uh, you know talking about Chaplin being seen from behind. There's an ad for uh, the Navigator where Keaton's seen from behind too. I mean, I guess you know you've really made it when you can be recognized from the back. Well, that's true, and uh, so many stars were instantly recognizable uh, from from any angle, and certainly that would apply to any of the really prominent uh, comedians from that era. Now, one thing that I think is interesting is, you know, the movies are very high-minded at this point after the production code. They're trying to be, you know, classy and upscale, but these are the guys who have to sell tickets. These guys have to get people in the door. And there's a lot of sex in these ads done, uh, you know, as as risque as you could be for the time period. Even in family newspapers, I mean, I was a little surprised there's a there's a particular look for women that I always think of as kind of the pre-code look. They're in a satin dress and they're braless and, you know, things fall naturally where they're going to fall. And uh, you see that in a lot of uh, pre-code stills. And I was surprised, you know, how often that turns up in the ads as well. Well, I, I've been surprised by some of the ads that I've come across that were extremely provocative much more so than the film could hope to be. And I realized that some newspapers were more lenient than others in terms of the sort of ad art that they would accept for publication. And uh, I I know that there are some ads that you would have seen in the book for Trader Horn. Yeah, the jungle pictures really seem to inspire everyone to think it's going to be naked breasts through the whole movie. Well, especially when the nudity is right there in the ads. Yeah. And I wonder, I mean, I guess there's fleeting glimpses here and there, I suppose, in that genre. It can't have been as satisfying after you've seen the movie as the ad promised. Well, that's true, of course, and that's true of any advertising for any product, I guess. But, <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, you're right. It, it was that there was a lure into the theater, which was supplied by the ads, by the posters, by all of what was used to publicize the film, and then, of course, the letdown when you actually sat down after buying your ticket. Yeah, I love that there's an ad for All Quiet on the Western Front that has, like, three French, you know, cafe babes, uh, whatever you want to call them, in the ad. Yeah, that's that's how I remember All Quiet on the Western Front, is for yeah. all, all the good-looking gals in it. Yes, but, exactly. One I meant to to bring up that I just saw, it's probably the funniest thing in the entire book. The kid's puzzle, find the fugitive from a chain gang here. Yes. You know, done in like the highlight style of where you look for the hidden fugitive. I finally found him up in one of the trees. Um, but, you know, what a, what a wholesome thing for kids. You know, you could it could maybe lead to a career in later life of, uh, you know, tracking down escaped uh, chain gang prisoners and stuff like that. So That's right. There you go. Yeah. Um, another one that's interesting. Now I'm flipping through the book and I'm, I'm just sort of finding things. Uh, the ads for the divorcee are done in very much a women's magazine style. I thought that was an interesting approach. It's got this copy, What Happens to Love? 
has love a chance in today's hot pursuit of pleasure? You know, who doesn't want to go find out the answer to that, right? But it's interesting. I mean, it's all kind of laid out like a magazine story. Well, it's true. I I love that uh, approach, the woman's magazine format, and the the whole uh, aura of pre-code and and selling something that that where you do promise of an honesty in the telling that that wouldn't necessarily be there just a few years later. So really, the pre-code ads were at least more uh, accurate as to the actual content of the movie. Well, yeah, like and, it, and you know, it's and it's good to go to this sort of uh, sexy-looking movie. You you know, you'll learn something about relationships today. Um, well, yeah, let's talk about exploitation for a minute because that that comes up inevitably. I mean, you have you have Ngagi turning up year after years, which somehow is a lost film, which is strange to me, or a partly lost film, I guess, uh, considering that it played for decades and decades. It seems like uh, Child Brides, which I remember the MST3K guys rejecting as a movie to make fun of because they thought it was just too tawdry and they all felt like they had to take a shower after it. Uh, there's, you know, all these kinds of things. Uh, you know, some of the studio things like Hitler's Children. The ads weren't afraid to go there. No, that's true. And especially Hitler's Children, which when you look at those ads in the book, it really gives a pretty good explanation for why that film was such a tremendous success. And people often forget that Hitler's Children was one of the biggest hits, one of the most profitable films that RKO had in, in its entire history. Yeah. Uh, and it's not a bad little movie. I mean, most of these are fairly terrible movies. That's actually one that's uh, that's decent enough to watch now. Well, that's true. It, and it was, it was a studio picture. It, it wasn't along the lines of A Child Bride or, or a film like that, which was, as you said, a very tawdry film. But the exploitation ads, well, they're fun, and you can imagine how people, really, it was almost like a shell game at a carnival where they knew that they were being misled and that they wouldn't get what they uh, bargained for, but I suppose that was part of the fun. Yeah, I'm still... Uh... I'm still burned by going to the Kansas State Fair as a kid, being promised a uh, 12-foot lizard, which, of course, was a towering uh, Tyrannosaurus in my mind, and it turned out to be a Komodo dragon just sort of laying there with a 7-foot tail that sort of tapered off to the length of, to the width of a pencil by the end, you know. Yeah, well, we all remember, too, the items that were uh, for sale in comic books. Right. <laughs> your your x-ray specs didn't work either, huh? Exactly, Yeah. Um, well, and, you know, from, from exploitation, let's go to another, another form of exploitation, which, of course, is horror. Um, it was interesting to see the ads, the original ads for things like Frankenstein and Dracula from, like, 31, 32, um, because we're, I think we mostly see reissue stuff from that. I mean, the trailers don't even exist for some of those films, the original ones. We see the real art ones from the 30s or even later. And, you know, seeing that how they sold the films, I feel like Boris Karloff in particular got a better deal out of the ads than he ever got treated by Universal. They tend to put him, you know, they give him credit as a question mark or they, you know, they'd put him after their their really big stars like John Bowles or somebody. 
And, uh, you know, but the ads knew what sold. And what sold was Karloff and what, or Lugosi, and what sold was seeing their faces, uh, you know, what their makeup was. They weren't really trying to hide any of that from, you know, for the movie. Well, what I think you bring up a very interesting point there. And one position that I've taken for a long time in relation to these ads and exhibitors and on a local level is that they were way ahead of Hollywood in terms of the public's response to the product or the personality being sold. They could respond instantly to whatever was going on in the marketplace. For instance, uh, if some star had been involved in a scandal last week, then they could use that to promote and exploit the star's latest films. And there are many instances of that in, in ad art that you'll see. And that's another reason why it was important for a theater, uh, well, for a showman, to customize his ads very specifically to the moment when he was putting them before his public in the newspaper. Because newspapers, of course, are made up of headlines. Well, theater ads needed to operate in the same manner. I have to wonder about that, too. I mean, how long were... By the 30s, how long would they play a movie? I mean, was it just for like three days and then they'd switch it over or it might be a full week? Well, in the smaller uh, theaters, yeah, it would be uh, two, three days because in smaller towns, of course, everyone could get in and out to see the film that they were interested in. In larger towns, naturally, it would be a week, maybe two weeks. In the 40s, and especially World War II, of course, you had much longer runs. And, well, you had a bigger audience then because uh, attendance really peaked during the war and right after in 1946. So uh, otherwise, though, when you're talking about the 30s and, well, what we refer to as pre-code, for instance, those films were in and out of theaters almost in the blink of an eye. Which is interesting that people talk about word of mouth being such a big thing. But there's no time for word of mouth to develop. If, you know, if it opens on Friday and closes on Sunday, I don't know how you really get, you know, I guess if it does develop, that's when something gets held over. But still, it kind of seems like it was too short to even be effective, but... Well, I think that's true to some extent, but on the other hand, word of mouth could travel very fast in a small town where there really wasn't that much entertainment to compete with the theater. I mean, if you're talking about the days before television, then what else did people have to amuse themselves besides going to the movies, unless they stayed home to listen to radio? So if you had a good film on a Monday, then word could travel within the two days left, and you would get a lot of the population there within that time to see the movie. So it was different in that the movies really did have... They they just so dominated the entertainment marketplace at that time. Yeah. Although, you know, one thing I always think about movie ads, too, um, you know, you think, oh, the old days, I would have gone to see, you know, Maltese Falcon on Monday and All About Eve on Tuesday and, you know, and the Marx Brothers on Wednesday. And then you find, like, an old page of movie ads and, like, half the movies, or most of the movies, really, are, like, something with, you know, Jeff Chandler and Jeannie Crane or somebody like that that you've never heard of since. And it always, I don't know, I, I feel like you get a better perspective on any era by seeing what the options really were and that the, the really strong movies, you know, were never that numerous, even 
even if they're more numerous than they are now. Yeah, I agree. And we we tend to think of a particular year of movies in terms of the best movies that came out that year. And I know when I would get uh, newspaper sheets from like 1957 or something, then I'm thinking in terms of certain movies that were outstanding this that year. And here's my sheet in front of me, and the biggest ad on the page is uh, the lady takes a flyer. Yeah, line of Turner, <laughs> you know. And I'm right. thinking. You know, is this the best they could do? Well, on that particular day, yes, it was the best they could do. Yeah. <clears throat> you do have that one that where it's like, it actually is pretty good. I mean, there's like Diabolique and Citizen Kane being brought back in little, you know, in corners of the page. I feel like that almost idealized what the, what the reality was like. So a lot of Lana Turner and Jeff Chandler things out there. So um, let's go to let's go to World War II. Yeah, I mean, what I, we when we talked about your other book, uh, Showman Sell It Hot, you and I talked about uh, via email that World War II in a lot of ways was the golden age of exhibition. People had money, which they hadn't necessarily had in the decade before. Uh, they had time to kill. They also were interested in news of the war. Um, newsreels were a big part of that. And, you know, movies felt that they were bringing you the real picture of things then, or they were bringing you the complete opposite if you wanted to get away from it. So, I mean, it, it, like you said then, I think, you know, it would have been great to be an exhibitor then. It would have been, the, you know, the golden moment to be in that business. Well, you know, I have said in the past, yes, wouldn't it be wonderful to have been an exhibitor? But, you know, when I've read the trades from back then and I've talked to actual men who who did have to work and plow those fields, I think, you know, I wouldn't have been willing to work that hard. (laughs) I mean, honestly, these people had so much responsibility. I don't know when they had time to sleep because they would be there from early morning until very late at night. And even if you're doing something you love, I, I really wonder what your threshold would, would be, because the work, the, the, the burden was enormous on these people. And the time, the, the, the fact that there was always a deadline hanging over them each day to get the ad into the newspaper so that it could be ready the next day. And this on top of changing the marquees and looking after staff and overhead and all the rest and because they're really in the smaller theaters the manager had to do the ad himself he had to just go upstairs at some point and do it and if it was a good ad it was going to take a couple of hours it it wasn't going to do itself the fact is i would be too lazy to be an exhibitor (laughs) that's all um yeah it's interesting as you look at the ads i mean there there's I think it's for Wake Island. You have some ads that, uh, you know, they're really they're pretty hard bitten. Rage! It'll put a machine gun in your hand and rage in your heart. Well, yeah, that's what I want coming out of my theater is a bunch of people howling for blood like that. Guts! Those four hundred and forty six fighting machines had it, and Paramount's Wake Island has it. I mean, that's. That's about as hard bitten as as the book gets anywhere. Um, most movies are promising a good time, but Wake Island is you know promising that it's going to get you riled up to go, uh, you know, <laughs> to, to go fight Tojo basically. Yeah, there there was that get even aspect in the first year after Pearl Harbor, and what of course 
uh, a lot uh, a lot of the um, motivation for going to those films was, of course, the fact that the newspapers were so grim and that we were losing the war to begin with. As the Japanese took one island after another, then really about the only outlet you had was to go see the movies where we were where we were winning. Well, but even some of the, I mean, the Guadalcanal Diary. I mean, it ends with how things really went in Guadalcanal. I mean, they're not they're not sugar coated at that point, and it's interesting. That, I mean, the the newspaper ad seems even more raw than the film, but in general, like you say, the the industry accepted that you know, a, a kind of a new tone of toughness very quickly. Yes. Yes, and you're right in what you said, that the uh, there had to be some accuracy as far as the fall of Bataan, Wake Island. The, the public knew that we essentially lost those battles, but the events leading up to the loss at the very end were reassuring because it showed our fighting spirit. And I think uh, told us that in the end we would prevail. If we just keep fighting, yeah. All right. So I, there's a section called "Sex for Art's Sake," and this is interesting to me. Um, the, you know, the the kind of beginnings of the era of the art film, um, and things that we think of as fairly, you know, as pretty serious films like Open City and Paisan, nevertheless are sold in a way that, you know, acknowledges as so many foreign films did, that you're going to get a sexier experience than you would from a Hollywood movie, um, which is only sort of true. I mean, it's more frank, but I don't think anybody would say it's, like, you know, fun. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's not uh, it's not a Matt Helm picture or any, something like that with, you know, bikini babes walking around. I don't know how else they could have sold the European art films other than in terms of sex. Because if you if you simply said to people, we're going to show you what conditions are like in post-war Italy or France or something, then how much interest would you have? Although there would be some, because a lot of servicemen had just come home from there. But on the other hand, sex, of course, being the universal language, that was the real that was the real draw to those films. I mean, if you look at the audiences in Italy or France, if you simply had said to them, well, how would you like to see a movie about uh, New England or or the Blue Ridge Mountains in the United States, how much interest would they have in that? Indeed, you know, films with Americana themes that were made here were notoriously uh, unpopular overseas. I remember Leslie Halliwell in his guide saying that, like you never released a movie over there with the word America in the title. If there was something, you know, an American gorilla in the Philippines or whatever, you always found a different title because people just didn't want to, you know, it was like signal to just be too much America in this movie. You know, I'll see a Western, you know, I'll see a movie about Wyoming, but I don't want, I don't want too much America in my movie, I guess was, was the attitude. Yes. Well, after Laura, uh, especially, it was essential to make uh, at least as much money overseas as you did here, because uh, that was where you broke even, really, was outside the U.S. territory. And if you had a film that wouldn't sell in Europe, then chances are it would lose money overall. Right. Now, we get into the, the 60s, and I thought it was kind of interesting. I mean, I feel to some extent the art 
sort of deteriorates at that part. More stuff is getting crammed in, which makes sense for like the drive-ins. They're part of what they're selling is, you know, the 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 four movie double or quadruple bill like he just wrote about at Greenbrier Picture Shows for AIP Pictures. Um but also, I mean like posters a certain amount of artiness came into posters and imagery. I think of like the Saul Bass posters and things like that. Um, or you start having, uh, was it Richard Amsel and Bob Peake doing more artistic posters for so many things. And the ads are kind of just a, you know, they're, they're a pale shadow, a black and white and newsprint shadow of how good the, the posters were. Um, do you, do you feel there are any really successful, interesting ads at this point? Like maybe the Psycho one, where Hitchcock directs his, addresses people directly? Well, yeah, obviously, this was the period when I really began collecting in earnest, so I have a lot of sympathy, or I have a lot of... of um, um, sentimental attachment. Sentimental attachment, exactly, to the ads that came along in the 60s, although now, when I look back and compare those with the ones that had gone before, they, they, don't, uh, they don't approach the the vigor of ads from the 30s and 40s especially but still there there were imaginative ads but they became fewer simply because the selling was being done on television that was the thing that really wiped out the theater ads was was saturation on tv i mean you remember growing up when we would sit in front of the television and be bombarded with 30 or 60 second ads and a week leading up to a film's opening well then that became the impression that that people carried with them when they went to buy a ticket was they had seen it advertised on television where they could see actual footage from the movie right and i would look through you know as a, as a kid haunting libraries in like the late 70s i would look through ads in the New York Times or in Variety or something like that, and there you'd still get like the impressive full-page ads. The ads in our paper tended to be pretty small, tended to be more listings. There might be a little bit of art for something that just opened, but even so, I mean, it's you know, it's maybe a two by three inch ad or you know, four inches square or something like that. Not big by any means. And, when and, I was in uh, when I was in high school, I used to go to the library and look at the New York Times ads, and they were spectacular, of course. Yeah, and also, I mean, I think by that point, you you didn't have the ind- independent operators. You know, there, there's good ads for some things in here. I'm just looking at the one for the Wild Bunch that that has the kind of catchy you know, daring the audience uh, line here. If you only want to spend two hours in a movie theater and go home and forget it, stay away from the wild bunch. Well, you know, that that attracts interest at a time when the Western was definitely oversaturated. But it's that's entirely Warner Brothers' work. I don't think that's anybody in any local theater doing more than just slapping their, you know, fourth wild week in the showtimes. Uh into the ad well yes and i i do think that uh, uh the distributors did send out slicks and supplemental ads as they kind of recognized how a film was doing then they would prepare special ads that were available to theaters that wanted to explore a kind of alter an alternative means of selling the film 
The Wild Bunch, obviously, is one where they did that. Also, I know Bonnie and Clyde was a film. Yeah, you, you talk about that. that in Showman Sell It Hot, and it's a really interesting story. There's a little bit of a reputation that Warner Brothers botched the initial re- release of Bonnie and Clyde, and the opposite is really true, you show, that yeah. they did a great job of recognizing where it was doing well and catering to that audience. Yes, yes. Well, th- there is a kind of misconception about so many films that that uh, where where the writer will say, well, this film was uh, tossed out to the public at the bottom of double bills or... You know, it was the thrown into drive-ins in the South. And, of course, it's always, whenever they say the South, of course, then that's the most damning phrase they can use. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yet, when you look closer at these things, you realize that in many cases, they were brilliantly sold from the very beginning, like Bonnie and Clyde. Or at least that's my position in it, or it's been my impression anyway. Yeah, t- well, tell me about the yeah what they did that was so good. Well, they had first of all they opened regionally with the film. They they opened slow. They they explored their options. They didn't rush ahead with saturation. They they understood they had something special from the beginning. I think, and it was just a question of finding the key to it. And ultimately, when they got the critics aboard, well, then yes, this was it. And they realized, I think, that they could sell this film to a sophisticated audience. That it wasn't just an action market for this movie. And there were a lot of surprises, I think, in the 60s with films that broke out because each one seemed to kind of break a mold as far as the understood way of selling. It was like, oh, no, well, this is different. This is going to kind of change the course for selling films in general. And you had that over and over with films. And well, even into the 70s when you had these gigantic hits that, that seemed to just break out of nowhere – then it did sort of redefine the means by which you would get the message to the public to, yes, come and see this movie. Yeah, well, you know, the one I always think of is 2001, which really didn't do that well the first time it came out. And then Kubrick came up with the, you know, instead of selling it as as kind of mid-60s space adventure, selling it as the ultimate trip to a younger audience. And then it really caught on at that point. It's interesting if you look at the at the grosses, 2001 was the second highest grossing sci-fi movie of 1968 after Planet of the Apes, but by about 1970 it was the highest grossing sci-fi movie of 1968. Yes. Well, it's it's interesting to see how even old films could be re uh, recycled in such a way as to appeal to a contemporary audience. You remember when Disney reissued Alice in Wonderland? Right. That, Stressing the psychedelic the, aspects. Exactly. And which was a very clever means of reselling this old film that had never been particularly well received even from the beginning. So here you go and you suddenly had a movie that young people would go out and see. So, are movies ever going to be as exciting as they were when these ads would... And, and also, I think, when theaters would sort of drip them out to us? I feel like we're now so over, overwhelmed with choices that, you know, the, the, the anticipation is lost. Uh, you know, I certainly know my own kids. They're not like anticipating the next Marvel movie coming out, partly because one comes out every four or five months, and there's no time to sort of 
you know, be starved for that sort of thing as, as we might have been waiting for Ray Harryhausen to finally finish animating the next Sinbad movie or something like that. Um, that, that I think anticipation is such a part of showbiz and there's no anticipation anymore. There's just immediate gratification. Well, I could say that, but then I have to sort of check myself by, by reminding myself that I'm really too old to be part of that excitement. And I really am not even aware specifically of what goes on the way I would have been back when I was growing up. And so I, I won't say that things are worse now or that, oh, the golden age is over and things will never be the same again. I really don't know what goes on about promoting new films. And um, and it's because I, I'm not as interested as I used to be. So I, I would not want to say, declare myself as, as in, in terms of, well, they don't know how to sell movies anymore and there's no excitement in it. Because if I were to take uh, just a random new film that's going to open in a week or two and really dig in, go on the Internet primarily, because that's where the biggest part of selling is done now, and really say Google it and see exactly how they're moving that film into the marketplace, I think I'd be astounded by all of the the uh, roads that that movie takes between now and opening day in terms of interviews, clips, previews. I mean, there are now like four, five, six trailers for every new film. You can find them online. There's like the standard general audience trailer. There's the red label trailer for R-rated films that you can look at. It's amazing all the alternatives you have to kind of get a preview of an oncoming film. John McAwee's new book is The Art of Selling Movies from Goodnight Books. That's goodnight, one word, with a K like Knights of the Round Table. We'll have a link for it and for John's blog, Greenbrier Picture Shows, in the show post at nitrateville.com. In the next episode, we'll be talking about a long-forgotten World War I drama. Long-forgotten unless you read about its legendarily blood-curdling plot in one of Kevin Brownlow's books. I'll be talking to Rob Byrne, president of the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, about the restoration and video release of Behind the Door from 1919. Make sure you don't miss a minute of Nitrateville Radio by subscribing at iTunes or SoundCloud or other fine podcast services. Special thanks to Bruce Calvert. Music is by Kevin McLeod. <laughs>